0: Hello, I'm Helen McKenna and I'm a senior fellow here at the King's Fund. The episode you're about to hear was recorded on the 10th of March and focuses on the government's first 100 days in office. Although the 10th of March was only a couple of weeks ago, our world has changed a lot since we recorded the episode. COVID-19 has developed rapidly, affecting us all, but particularly impacting on our health and care systems and the incredible people who work in them. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be thinking about how we can use future episodes of the podcast to focus on the impact of this virus and to shine a light on how people working in health and care are dealing with these extraordinary times. In the meantime, we hope you find this discussion interesting, whether you're listening during the outbreak or indeed once things have returned to normal. As always, thank you for listening. And from all of us here at the Kings Fund, please stay at home. It helps to save lives. And obviously, we hope you stay well. Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a senior fellow here at the Fund, and I'm your host for this episode. Given everything that's going on in the world right now, the general election might feel like a distant memory. However, it's only three months since the country went to the ballot box and elected a Conservative government with an 80-seat majority in Parliament, led by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. At the time of recording this episode, we're approaching 100 days of the new Conservative majority government, so it seems like the perfect opportunity to take stock of what we've seen from the government so far and what it signals in terms of their intentions for health and care policy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome three fantastic guests, all of whom have extensive knowledge of working in or with different governments. So I'm joined by Michelle Mitchell, Paul Corrigan and Alex Thomas. So Michelle, I'll start with you. Can you tell our listeners who you are and what you do?
1: I'm Michelle Mitchell and I have the absolute privilege and honour of being the Chief Executive of Cancer Research UK, the world's largest independent funder of cancer research. Brilliant, thank you. And Paul? Uh,
2: Paul Corrigan. I was special advisor to Alan Milburn and John Reid and Tony Blair between 2001 and 2007.
0: Thank you very much. And Alex? I'm Alex
3: Thomas. I'm a programme director at the Institute for Government, uh, which is a think tank that focuses on making government uh, work better. I'm about seven weeks in, but so uh, before that I was a civil servant in various places, including the Cabinet Office, briefly the Department of Health and the Department for the Environment, Food and
0: Rural Affairs. Brilliant. So between us, a huge amount of knowledge around this table. So on the 22nd of March, the new government will have been in power for 100 days. So far, the government's been pretty busy in relation to health and care. Clearly, a lot of that time has been overseeing the UK's response to coronavirus or COVID-19. But they've also been busy trying to deliver some of their manifesto pledges. We're also recording this the day before the budget, when we should get a clearer sense of the government's priorities and policy agenda. But Alex, if I could come to you first, what's your take on what these first few months tell us about the new government's intentions in relation to health and care?
3: So I think in general terms, actually, it feels quite early and it's a little bit too soon to know. One of the things that has really struck me about the first 100 days of this government is how there's been quite a lot of sound and fury. Mm -hmm. There have been a few blog posts. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. been quite a lot of media briefing. But actually, the set piece events that really tell us the detail about what the government's likely to do have been relatively few and far between. But one of the things that does really strike me is how it's quite hard to get your arms around what this government you know, is really going to prioritise. They will care about long-term infrastructure. They will mm-hmm. care about about tackling the kind of uh, wicked issues, and they've got the opportunity to do that. But within that, you know, we're trading off. Uh, investing political capital in social care versus levelling up um, infrastructure in the uh, north of England. I, I think we don't really quite know. So I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around uh, exactly what this government kind of is, is going to
2: prioritise.
0: OK. And Paul, I mean, is it the same for you? You think it's too soon to tell? Or... I think
2: it will be clearer in a few weeks and perhaps months. I think there is something quite interesting in the uh, a lot of the fire and fury that's come out of the government is about disruption. And that is, I think, quite real, that they believe they have a better chance of bringing about a lot of change if they change the way which things have been done. However, that's not the case with the NHS. So there's mm. a bracket about disruption. Um, so you're allowed to disrupt A, B, C and D, mm. but not the NHS. Uh, I think the, the noises from inside uh, uh, both Number 10 and the DH is, is take our targets seriously uh, because we pledge to do them and we probably will. And so I think we'll see a target-driven set of changes in the NHS, and that may lead to quite a bit of change. I think the rest we have to wait and see. But I think, for me, this twin approach to change, mm. I think, is very
0: interesting. Yeah. And, Michelle, do you agree with that Um More broadly, we're seeing a kind of disruptive element to this government, but the NHS is going to be protected from that Well,
1: I I would just draw us back to the general election to enable us to paint a picture of where we think the priorities may be. So when you look at the work that's been conducted by Morrie on the public concerns about uh, the health and care system, the government responded with some pretty meaty uh, manifesto commitments, not least 50,000 new nurses, 6,000 doctors, 6,000 primary care, professionals, and has talked about a funding settlement for health in in pretty serious ways. We've also got the rhetoric of uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, talking about the NHS as being one of the most beautiful and brilliant things about Britain. And we would all agree with that, although we would all agree there needs to be significant improvement and resources and funding. Uh, to ensure we meet some of the big ambitions in in the long-term plan and that had yet to be seen so where I do agree is the budget and the spending review are going to be pretty pretty important in ensuring that the money and resources are there to ensure we have not only the right workforce but diagnostic funding and capital funding to ensure we meet a very very ambitious agenda.
0: But so I wanted to spend a a bit of time thinking about how you influence a government with this size of majority. The last time we had a government with a majority of this scale in parliament was under the last Labour government, or an earlier Labour government. Alex, can I come to you first? What difference does it make for a government to have a healthy majority in terms of how policy is developed and implemented?
3: So it's the key for me on this, it, it, it shapes where the kind of locus of debate is. So... For the last few years with the minority government, the focus of debate has been on Parliament and quite a kind of exposed public row that is being played out with, you know, one, two, three, four MPs being really influential. In the coalition government, it was about the kind of balancing within the government. Uh, And so actually, if you could influence one part of the government in the policy formation stage, then that was quite effective. Once the coalition had agreed a position, it was actually then very hard to change it, you know, unless you had a a proper row, as we saw with the Lansley reform. In this circumstance, I think the focus of debate is inside the Conservative Party. So uh, we're seeing that you know, the rows that have happened so far have been things that touch Conservative MPs' hotspots. So if you can get 40 Conservative backbenchers on your side, then you're talking. But more prosaically and in more general terms, it'll be the special advisers in individual departments, Department of Health, in Number 10... The ministers and the kind of sort of the the political layer and also as ever the civil servants the officials not necessarily the very top ones Mm. but the ones who are working on your particular policy that will help frame the debate for for their political masters so uh, in in this environment it's that kind of slightly more closed slightly more difficult to get into
0: so it's quite a lot harder therefore for organizations like ours like the king's fund and Michelle's Cancer Research UK to have influence or is there a point? I think If
3: you've got the relationships, yeah. then that's, you, do you know, it. it's, it's easier. And also, of course, if you've got the relationships and you influence the individual in government, then it's easier for them to transact and to get done the thing that you've agreed that uh, is, the, is the right thing to do. But it's all um, about relationships. But it's, it's, it's relationships. It's more kind of closed. It's more behind the scenes. Yeah. It's... Of course, there's still the kind of public shaping and influencing, but I would say you're less likely to uh, achieve the outcomes that you want uh, through a kind of big public back and yeah. forth, uh, and more likely to do it through behind the scenes influencing. A government with a majority will some issues then become a test of machismo, hmm. and so uh, it's it's harder for a government with a majority then to uh, to back down because uh, every you know every U-turn uh, is a is a sort of degrading of the government's political power and political capital.
1: Well every charity, uh, not least Cancer Research UK, its job is to use the evidence base it has Mm. to tell the story of where we are today and use the brilliant brains that we have to come up with solutions about how to make it better. So of course we are non-political, we work across all of the political parties but also across the health system as well. Mm. So I would add a couple of points. One, I think a majority government makes legislation on health more likely. Yeah. This government is particularly interested in science and innovation as a route for delivering transformational change and impact for people, as well as changing the NHS. And so we as charities need to, where we can speak with one voice, so we have coordinated uh, more recently 25 cancer charities to speak to government about its priorities. Uh, Really being clear on what's important, uh, using evidence continuously and solutions to the problems that are Mm. uh, facing us. But I would add a second point is the government is, of course, incredibly important. But so, too, is the NHS, NHS England, NHS Improvement. It's an arm's length body with significant degrees of autonomy and independence. So we continue to have to work at a national level and many things happen at a regional and local level as well. So charities need to focus on describing with evidence of the problem, what are the solutions they see, and working at every level Mm. within government and the health system to ensure that a range of ambitious changes, for us, improvement in cancer survival are met, because the levers for change are diffuse uh, in the health system, and uh, what we've seen over many governments is saying from Whitehall what you want the change to be doesn't necessarily always deliver that change to time and to target.
2: Paul? The thing I'd like to add to what's been said is that people uh, who spent their lives in policy don't understand the euphoria of having a majority. Mm. It's 32 years since the Tories have had a large majority and therefore people are sitting in government with an experience of being supported by the public to do things, which is quite stunning as an experience. I just remember myself in 2001, 13.5 million people voted for these things, and so you took them seriously, and you took that mandate morally pretty seriously. And so I had, between 2001 and 2003, Lots of policy people coming in to see me, especially the King's Fund, uh, coming in and <laughs> saying... What max- about Cancer Research UK? Yeah, <laughs> they probably would have been there as well, uh, saying that maximum waiting times are not an issue, it's the wrong issue. Yeah. And I had 13.5 million people saying it was the right issue. So this was not a healthy debate mm. between politics and policy. When a couple of years in, it started to happen, a lot of people then came in and said, how do we help you? And that seems to me to be the clever bit of influencing, is looking at what the government wants to do and thinking, how do we help you? Because the helping bit is helping a large number of the electorate uh, to get what they wanted. It's not just a political party. This is, in a sense, what democracy is all about. There's other things, uh, but actually it seems to me, going in and saying... Uh, these are the issues that really matter to the British people and how do we help you do them mm. is something which special advisors. To make
1: things work. Yeah,
2: to make things work as the electorate want them to work. And I think there's a genuine unity there between what outside policymakers want, what charities want, what the electorate want and what ministers want, and you can then get some really important traction. Uh, Those of us who have been involved in health reform for some time uh, can help this government hit these targets by bringing the notion of reform earlier into their discussion. So 50 million increase in GP surgery appointments... For those of us who've been trying to reform primary care for the last few years, we know how to do that. And we know around the country there are real live examples where, that, where the appointments have been transformed by tech, by uh, f- uh, pharmacists, by a whole range of people that are not GPs. Um, and so, uh, so it's possible to get them to, to that and also, in my interest, to bring about some reform in primary care um so i think i think i think we have got real things uh, about change which we can help the government with i think this might sound strange given sort of what we've
3: been through as a country over the last few years and particularly the last nine months or so but on health and broad, more broadly on social policy i i don't get the sense this government is particularly ideological mm. so uh, they will be interested yes of course they prefer to push one button or pull one lever but i suspect they will be most interested in what works yeah. and uh, that comes to the kind of the 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 one don't and the one do that i would uh, i i would throw in the don't is don't assume malign motives um <clears throat> and the do is uh, uh Bring, you know, it doesn't have to be one solution, but something, you know, set something out that is easily uh, forwardable on from one sort of powerful special advisor to a permanent secretary or a secretary of state saying, look, here's a thing, do this. Um, and that's the way to, um, to, to get influence, I think, is to kind of package up. Uh, um, a a proposition that uh, that the government can kind of look at and go actually that makes sense and that is going to help us achieve what our objectives are
0: let's get on and, and do it. Brilliant so quite a lot of really helpful tips I think and obviously following the election result there's been lots of talk about the red wall turning blue lots of focus on the need to level up particular areas and address regional inequalities. Paul when it comes to health and care how do you think this is likely to shape the government's agenda?
2: I, I think it will. I think it's a serious a serious agenda. I think the new MPs will make sure it's a serious agenda. And I think there are two really important areas where they've got to get change going very quickly. Mm. First, and where uh, I think all of us outside of government can help, the first is around health inequalities in the left-behind areas, which are truly shocking. I mean, I mm-hmm. know a lot of these places in the north east. Yeah. And the difference between Consit, Bishop and Blythe, and the rest of the country is very is enormous. And I think we know from certain parts, other areas, how to intervene in, in areas of high health inequality and to start to change life expectancy and health. And I think we need to start talking about what those lessons were yeah. uh, and how to influence, influence these locations. And I think it will need very specific interventions and so I think we we know we around this table know some things what to do and I think we then need to work with government so that's the first thing the second thing is the nature of health policy about Mm. what we do with our hospitals and how we organize our hospitals has has added to the experience of being left behind so we have and I think quite correctly moved specialisms into specialist units and that means Bishop Auckland Hospital in Bishop Auckland and Shotley Beach Hospital in Consett have, as far as the public have been concerned, been downsized. Yeah. And that actually it becomes a less important institution. Because you go to a person I know Bishop Auckland with cancer, goes to South Tees and has nothing to do with Bishop Auckland. Now, changing that isn't easy because actually the decisions that have been made around healthcare have been important decisions around healthcare. However, in Bishop Auckland, there are, at the moment, more people using the hospital, even though they're not doing specialist activity, than they were when it was opened. So we've given the impression to the people of Bishop Auckland that the hospital is less important, when actually, in human terms, it is more important. Yeah. And that's because of the way in which we talk about health policy. So specialism matters, long-term conditions don't. And actually, in Bishop Auckland, there's tens of thousands of people who need So we need to recognise that the health service of the present and the future is going to be working in all areas and that those areas are just as important yeah. as Newcastle General or as South Tees Hospital. And I think that's very doable, but at the moment, the public perception, following on from health policy, is that these small institutions don't matter.
0: Yeah, and of course, there's also the the role of kind of anchor institutions in these areas, and the role that hospitals can play in that sense.
1: I mean, what we've seen is the government be quite bold, and as a ex civil servant, you may say brave on some <laughs> issues. <laughs> uh, what we want to see is. Bravery and boldness on Mm. prevention. Um, Smoking is the single most important driver of health inequalities, accounting for around half the difference in life expectancy between the richest and the poorest. We have a budget coming up imminently. I would really like to see the government loosen its reins on funding for local government because, of course, that's been one of the hardest areas hit it is a, a way to, you know, ensure some of those essential services are put in place yeah. at a local level including smoking cessation. And also to be bolder in policy making and explore ideas like the polluter pays and, mm. and taxing the tobacco companies. Uh, if we're going to address some of the big health inequalities that exist and also see a much more radical shift around prevention more broadly. Same goes with obesity yeah. uh, and its you know, second largest impact on risk factor on cancer.
3: I agree the government's serious about this. Two quick thoughts on it. One is the sorts of issues that Michelle and Paul were just talking about are the work of decades and more. I, th- I think this government uh, will have an eye to the long term but they will need some short-term political Absolutely. sweeties as well election. so what are the and um, it comes back to where we started this conversation yeah. not just the kind of recruiting of uh, uh, staff and things but what what are the wins that you can make in the next two or three years on this uh, to give you the political cover to do the 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 10 20 year uh, interventions the second thought which uh, slightly relates to that but but is 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 prompted by Michelle talking about local authorities is i have a feeling that assuming the spending taps are going to come on at least in some areas in the government after 10 years of austerity the government's actually going to find it quite hard to spend money efficiently and Mm. to get it out of the door so shovel ready schemes or
1: um, oven oven baked schemes uh, (laughs)
3: uh, microwave ready etc will be things that uh, go down uh, go down very well but also you know there's something incumbent on the government to 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 give local authorities the support to give the you know the usual delivery mechanisms that they would use the support to spend this money well and, Mm. and and not to either waste it or to have it just sitting in bank accounts in uh, in in Whitehall so um, I don't quite know what the answer is to that but there's something about uh, about being able to make effective interventions there. And,
1: and when you look at you know the hundred days of many governments from around the world I think there's a message that comes through quite strongly is is do be bold mm. and do be brave and you know you would have a g- great descriptions of it yourself but you know time moves on quickly. Yeah. Things can get more complicated in time. You have a unique opportunity in your first year to lay out a radical and reforming agenda Mm. on a whole range of fronts, including not only the support of the long-term plan here, but much more radical steps around prevention and not be shy and reserved Mm. about that. And
0: particularly an opportunity with the size of majority. Yes. And I think in five years, you can get some good
2: numbers around health inequality change. Mm. The health of people is so bad, uh, so neglected that in five years, uh, up until 2006, we t- we bent the curve on life expectancy in 10 local authorities, and that comes back to working with local authorities because actually you can identify the people in their 50s mm. and actually intervene and surround them with care yeah. and actually keep them alive for another 20 years. And that's pretty important to them mm-hmm. and pretty important to uh, changing the numbers. And so in five years you can do things because we start in these areas from people being unnecessarily sick yeah. for quite a long period of time. Yeah,
0: And that could make a tangible difference yeah. to people's lives as they come to voting at the next election. Um, so. Elsewhere, we've heard rumours about Number 10 wanting to legislate to have more control over NHS England and NHS improvement and bring in other changes to the current legislative framework. I don't like talking about rumours, but but this is an interesting one, so we may as well. (laughs) So I just wondered, Paul, what's your take on whether they're serious about doing this?
2: I think um, any government that comes in and has made all these pledges around the NHS will immediately say, we want more control. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, why are we being held to account on something that's down to Simon Stevens? And this is all wrong. In, in political terms, it feels wrong that you're held to account. Yeah. And so I think the rumours that are around in January, uh, I suspect, will disappear because actually taking control means taking a lot more blame. Mm. And so actually you're then just responsible, not just for these targets, but you're responsible for a death in Oldham. And that, that is something that is horrific for a Secretary of State. Um, the, so when the Secretary of State, when the Perm Sec was the chief exec of the NHS, then the reality of that experience was the Secretary of State could be held to account for anything. And I think once they get into thinking through that... I think they'll probably say no.
1: I think a natural question is to say we recognise the public's issues of concern, we've given extra funding to the NHS, we want to make sure there are improvements made. I think that's quite different to taking over and controlling the NHS. What we did see before the election was a good cross-party debate about what legislation was needed to improve how the NHS works. And I think there are several areas where there could be improvement. So we could see legislation perhaps in a year or so's time mm. on the NHS, but that could also be about improving how it works rather than taking direct control. Yeah, And there are many areas that could be improved.
0: So I just wanted to ask a question about social care. So we've seen that Matt Hancock has moved to set up cross-party talks on reforming social care funding. That's he talked about. they talked about in the manifesto. So, Alex, one for you. How willing do you think this government will be to expend some of their political capital on this issue?
3: Aim off for the fact that I was in... Uh... Uh, the Cabinet Secretary's Office and sort of close to the centre through the 2017 general election. So while we weren't involved in the campaign, we were sort of watching that closely. But that baggage leads me to think that I I just can't quite see Mm. a government grasping this third rail and really doing something on it that I hope that's unduly pessimistic. But kind of all my instincts are that this is going to be in the too difficult box and there'll be something sort of superficial, there'll be some process around it. I'm feeling a bit pessimistic about that at the moment.
0: And Michelle, Paul, is that similar views from you?
1: So we've talked for a decade about how, if only we could Mm. copy the policy process that Adair Turner went through on pensions. It's not been the case for nearly a decade. Your lovely colleague Sally talked very passionately about her disappointment and the progress on social care uh, in a recent podcast. I think it should be one of the highest priorities of this government. And of course, when we look at the change that's needed not only the uh, funding, the people, the capital, the diagnostics, long-term settlement for social care, makes infinite sense. I hope the government has infinite sense. <laughs>
0: As do we all. For
2: I agree with Alex. I don't think they will grasp this. However, I think probably in a year to 18 months, they won't have a choice. I think the system is crumbling and may well fall over. So you know, if people stop coming speaking as an older person, then, then the system will fall over. Yeah. If the New York fund managers decide to withdraw from elderly care in this country, the system will fall yeah. over. So I think the chances of this continuing as fragile as it is for another four years without something big happening, I think, uh, I think that's not going to happen. So I think, think something bad will happen. I'm afraid. But it might be
0: reactive policy yeah, rather than reactive. strategic. Do you think yeah. there are any
2: political wins for someone who grasps the nettle? I think you feel good.
0: (laughs) It's the right thing to do. Yeah, I do. But I don't
2: don't, don't think it's as simple as. The relationship between the public and social care and the relationship between the public and the NHS is so many streets apart.
0: So given the current climate, I don't think we can get through this episode without mentioning COVID-19. Paul, I wanted to ask you, because you worked in government during SARS, so you've witnessed firsthand how the government machinery deals with issues like this. Can you talk us through how it works my
2: experience of this and what we've seen in the last uh, few days has been that the british people have fallen in love with experts again but having been told the british people have had enough of experts and i think that's very very important and certainly so certainly my experience is that when anything like this happened mm. the chief medical officer was put on a pedestal and they they were listened to and the crucial thing is that sometimes experts don't know.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think it's just as important to listen to them then as when they say in my experience you've got to do this because actually I think what's going on at the moment is an incredibly measured experience between knowledge and not having knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was true with SARS. I mean SARS actually in the end didn't travel the way which the coronavirus travelled. But it was it, it was unknown and we still don't know uh, ever such a lot about this virus. And so the wonderful thing is actually following expertise that are saying We're not sure, because that's the right thing to follow. And it's a lot easier when people say, this is what you've got to do. But actually, the politicians have to make their mind up uh, at the moment around things that are quite difficult to make their mind up. I think we're seeing more and more of that listening to expertise, and I think we will continue to see that. I think now the government's got into the swing of that as its mode yeah. i think it will continue that'll be very important for the nation i i also think our colleague chris hobson was on the um, on bbc uh, news the other day and he said this may seem a very odd thing to say but if you're going to be anywhere in the world when this thing happens i'd like to be here yeah, absolutely. because i think we have a system which actually can respond to this and it's going to be awful but actually it's going to take place within a system and with a nation that has a rough idea what to do.
0: Thank you. Before we finish, if you had to pick one thing that you'd like to see at the top of the government's agenda for health and care, I'm going to ask you to do it in a single word or phrase. What would that be? Alex, I'm coming to you first.
3: Slightly counter to what I said earlier, I would say social care is clearly the most yeah. important thing uh, for this government to, uh, to grasp.
1: To have a properly funded workforce diagnostic and capital plan to improve diagnosis to 75% of cancers at an early stage by 2028.
0: Brilliant. Sort social care. Yeah. So two on social care. And a proper focus. Brilliant. So that's it from us. Thank you to our guests, Paul Corrigan, Michelle Mitchell, and Alex Thomas, for joining us. Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash kfpodcast. Thanks, as always, to our podcast team, our policy advisor, Jonathan Holmes, and our producers, Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find us and helps us improve the show. We hope you can join us next time.